Lord, we thank you so much that you are not only making disciples around us, but you're making us better disciples. No matter how long we've been following you, whether it's one day or 30, 40, 50 years, there's always something new to learn. And the fact that we have faith requires that we put it into action no matter where we are, no matter who we're with. And that looks very different every single day in whatever context we find ourselves in. So teach us, Lord God, to be good followers of you, of Christ, and to live out our faith constantly. For the sake of your name, I pray. Amen. And so we're going to be in James chapter 2 this morning, continuing on in our series in James. And I want to begin by saying this phrase, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. One of my greatest concerns today is the fact that talk is so cheap. And with the advent of social media, Facebook, Instagram, all these kinds of things, there has been no time in history where this has been more true than now. Talk is cheap. When words are not followed up with action, there's a question as to the validity of those words. There are multitudes of people today that profess to be Christians. And they lay claim to the fact that they have saving faith, but is that profession followed up with action? We live in an age where it's relatively easy to become a so-called Christian in this country. Bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand, repeat the words, presto changeo, you're there, right? And that's what many believe. There's often no call to a changed life in the contemporary version of Christianity, and that is undeniably evidenced by the pervasiveness of worldliness, spiritual complacency, and the incredible amount of moral laxity in our churches today. If everyone who claimed to be a Christian today acted like they were Christian Christ followers and lived a life that corresponded to the biblical description, and I'm not talking about perfection, and I'm not talking about legalism, and I'm not talking about living by the law, I'm talking about acting and living like Jesus. What he modeled for us, you know, if more of us that claim to be Christians did that, there would not be an abortion issue among Christians. There still would be one in the world, but there wouldn't be one among Christians. There would not be a high percentage of divorce in the church. In an article posted by the Gospel Coalition a few years ago, Glenn Stanton wrote, people who seriously practice a traditional religious faith, whether Christian or other, have a divorce rate markedly lower than the general population. The factor making the most difference, and he highlights, I highlight this, is religious commitment and practice. What appears intuitive is true. Couples who regularly practice any combination of serious religious behaviors and attitudes attend church nearly every week, read their Bible, spiritual materials, read spiritual materials regularly, pray privately and together, generally take their faith seriously living not as perfect disciples, but as serious disciples. It's a difference. 
enjoy significantly lower divorce rates than mere church members, the, mem the general public and unbelievers. Again, if those who profess to follow Christ actually followed Christ better, there would not be such widespread issues with suicide, murders, child abuse, spousal abuse, substance abuse, and pornography among church people. How can I say that? Because the recent polls indicate that over 89%, that's nine out of 10 people of the American public claim to believe in God. It's nine out of 10. And just under 71% identify as Christian. And that, by the way, number is declining yearly. But today we must examine the evidence what James has us doing. We must decide whether or not what we do is matching up with what we say. So I'd like you to turn to James 2. If you're already there, follow along with me as we read verses 14 to 26. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, uh, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. As a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Bing, 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 bing. Big red flag. We're going to get to that. Martin Luther's rolling over in his grave right now. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, I've not been looking forward to preaching this section of James. But we're going to get her done. As Pastor Glenn says, James begins here by asking some very poignant rhetorical questions. Verse 14, again, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? These penetrating questions must be asked of every single one of us. What good is a faith whose whole substance is in words and nothing more? Is that the kind of faith that the Bible calls saving faith? The implied answer is, say it louder. No. It's a resounding no. 
Authentic faith must be followed up with action. When I was a kid in grammar school, we used to have a saying that we used when someone got a little cocky about what they were claiming. We'd say, oh, big talk, no action. Remember that? It was sarcasm, an epithet designed to make the other guy put up or shut up, right? Well, as crass as this may sound, that is exactly what James is getting at in this text. This is an age of big talk and no action. How many of us in this room are in danger of being found in this group? James wants us to check out what the evidence in our lives bears out. Ultimately, his point is that a work of faith is a faith that works, and a workless faith is a worthless faith. He's going to illustrate this by identifying and describing three different types of faith. Only one of them is worth your while. Which of them describes yours? Number one. Dead faith, James says, is pointless. A dead faith is pointless. Why? Because it consists only of worthless wishes. Verses 14 to 17, let me just read them again. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without food or clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled. And then you don't give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, if faith doesn't have works, it is what? Dead being by itself. You have one tongue in your mouth and two tongues in your shoes. And no matter what the tongue in your mouth is saying, the tongues in your shoes reveal what you're doing and where you're going. Right? James illustrates this with an example that sounds almost ridiculous to any of us. And by the way, this isn't saying, James isn't saying that you need to go clothe everybody that needs clothes. He's using this as a ridiculous example of what it would be like to just have words of faith but no actions of faith. We're looking at a brother or sister that's in de desperate straits here. They don't have any clothes. They don't have any food. And we meet such a person on the street, and we have a set of clothes in the back of our car. Or we have a lunch sitting on the seat of our car. And we just greet them, and we give them the standard farewell of the day. Oh, go in peace. Be warmed. Be filled. God bless you, my son. And, and, and we never give them what's necessary. Is that any good? Absolutely not. Sentimental well-wishing is quite worthless, isn't it? Somebody comes up to you and they've got serious, serious issues in their life. They're crying. They're weeping. They're sitting next to you in church. And you put your hand on their shoulder and you say, I'll pray for you this week. But you don't pray for them then and you don't take them out into the cafe afterwards and share coffee with them and try to find out what's wrong with them and you don't call them during the week to see what they need or it's just, you know, be warm, be filled, go in peace. Oh, by the way, you forget to pray for them that, that week because it just really isn't that important and it's not in the forefront of your mind. We've all probably experienced that scenario in our lives. I'm not saying that it happens all the time, but we know what it's like when we're part of that. 
That's what James is getting at. You know, you can say things, but those words don't make that person or help that person one iota. What good is a bunch of words to a starving man? They're worthless. James ends this illustration with the same question that he opened with. Notice what he opens with. What's the first few words in verse 14? What use is it? What's the last few words of verse 17, uh, 16? What use is that? Rich Mullins once put it like this. He said, faith without works is like a song you can't sing. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. (laughs) Here's the proposition. A workless faith is a worthless faith. Faith Faith without works is dead. A living faith brings forth fruit because life is dynamic and it's productive. A living faith is one that is profitable. It will be active. A profitable faith is a productive faith. A man may hear the truth and say that he's saved, but if there's no fruit in his life, no works, no good deeds, that's not saving faith. Talk of being a Christian is not equal to being a Christian. Say that again. Talk of being a Christian is not equal to being a Christian. Saying so does not make it so. Notice James does not deny that it is faith. He simply says that it's not the right kind of faith. It's not saving faith. It's dead faith. Make no mistake, my friends, there are many kinds of faith in this world. The world... The word faith really only has meaning in the context in which you find it. James is not contradicting the truth that Paul wrote about back in Romans and in Galatians that we are saved by faith alone. I think James would agree with what Paul is saying. Faith alone saves but what is he saying? What he is saying here is that faith that saves is never alone. Can I say that again? Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone because it always is accompanied by good works and outworking of that faith. The problem we have today is that too many people have believed the lie that all you have to do is pray the prayer, raise the hand, walk the aisle, bow your head, weep a little bit, say the words of the gospel, repeat the sinner's prayer, and then it's back to life as usual. You know what? That's Satan's big sell. Satan's big sell. What better way of keeping people from real salvation than to make them think that they already are? A minister was talking to a professing Christian and asked him if he was active in his local church. The man responded, no, but the dying thief wasn't active in a church, and yet he was still approved. The minister then asked if he had been baptized, and the man responded, no, the dying thief was not baptized, and he still made it into heaven. And the minister then asked if he had partaken of the Lord's table. And the man responded, no, but the dying thief never had communion either. And Christ still received him. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And the minister then commented, the only difference between you and the dying thief is that he was dying in his belief and you're dead in yours. 
Someone has said that faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can always see their results. <laughs> Dead faith is worthless. It's unprofitable and unproductive. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said it this way. He said, God will not use dead tools to work living miracles. The passage before us pierces the heart of the problem, a mere mental ascent with no reality in your life. However, genuine belief always results in godly behavior. Too often, however, it can be mere lip service, big talk, no action. We only live once. Whatever opportunities we miss now are gone forever. We need to wake up from our sleep and redeem the time, the Scripture says. Every day is valuable, too precious to lose. And the older you get, the more you realize that's true. So hold the sentiments, James says, because without action, they're worthless. Don't feed, they don't feed the hungry. They don't clothe the naked. They don't comfort the hurting. John said it this way in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. said, but whoever has the world's goods, oh, back up to 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Matthew chapter 25, we don't need to go there, but you know the scenario when God comes to judge the nations at the end of time and he puts, separates them into sheep and goats, right? Sheep on the right, goats on the left. What did he say to the people that had fed the hungry and given drinks to people who were thirsty and clothed the, the naked and visited people in prison. Whatever you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me, right? But the condemnation came to those who didn't do any of that. And they said, well, when did we see you, Lord? When did we see you? Well, when you, when you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it unto me either. John Wesley challenges us with a few good words about good works. He says, do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can for as long as you ever can. A workless faith, James says, is a worthless faith. Dead faith is worthless because it's pointless. It consists of nothing more than worthless wishes and no follow-up. But there's another kind of faith that James identifies here that we must talk about, and this is the most deceiving of them all. It is a faith which is no better than that of demons. It, it consists of nothing more than worthless words. If dead faith is pointless, James says that demon-like faith is useless. Verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. But the demons also believe and shudder. 
But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? See, James opens up this section with one of the hardest, most difficult verses in the Scripture to translate. And I believe he's introducing his, his next argument by saying this. Let me put it in the vernacular for you. Look, someone may well say that you have faith. Prove it. Memorized words cannot prove meaningful faith. Show me your faith without your works. Go ahead, make my day. You can't do it. But I will show you my faith by my works, James says. Contrary to what some have charged, he's not implying that saving faith is the spiritual result of works. That's not what he's saying at all. Make no mistake about it. He's saying that the works are the natural result of saving faith. Since faith is invisible, it can only be manifested through works. The point is, is that true faith and works are inseparable. You can't divide them. You cannot have one without the other. Works without faith is legalism and does not save. Faith without works is empty profession, and it does not save. Saving faith lives and it breathes and it proves itself alive by working and bearing fruit. It is useful, James says. James is showing the utter ridiculousness of someone claiming to have true faith and yet does nothing outwardly to make that known. He uses the terms faith and works together in this text 10 times in 13 verses. What he's stressing here is the inseparable nature of them. They are a team. It's like people who play the lottery and one half of the ticket says void if removed. Right? It's kind of the same deal here. You can't remove one or the other. The whole thing is void if you do. As was mentioned before, the passage facing us pierces the heart of a huge problem in today's church and its simple mental assent. We have all the right words, don't we? People have all the right words. I remember, I remember on Lisbon Street in Lewiston when I first got saved. I remember walking down the street with a mentor friend of mine, and there's a drunk on the street corner, and being all on fire and vibrant and ready to witness to anybody. I walked up to the guy, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and I started talking to him about Jesus. You know, that guy was fall down drunk, and he turned around, and he could quote scripture to me better than most of my friends. He knew the whole deal. He knew the words. He had the mental assent, and that's what it is. We have all the right words. You ever wonder why when kids get into their teens and young adulthood that they leave the church? We hear parents say, well, she was saved at four years old. She went through Sunday schools, was baptized, won scripture memorization contests, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why? Maybe because they were never saved to begin with, and maybe because we gave them all the right words to say, and that's the problems. We teach our kids all the right answers to the questions, just like we teach a dog to play tricks, to sit and stay. But are we looking for that moment when they're right for salvation? Are we constantly looking for that heart Wrenching time. Now, not all kids. Some kids just go AWOL for a while and they come back. 
because they were trained. I'm not saying that the training is wrong. What I am saying is what James is saying. We need to be looking for that, that point in time when we, we need to evangelize the heart, not just the head. In other words, we have a lot of head knowledge, but we all know that intellectual assent does not make one a Christian. Belief in orthodox doctrine alone does not make one a true follower of Christ. And James highlights this just impeccably here in verse 19 when he says, you believe that God is one. That's great. You do really well with that. But the demons also believe that, you know. And they shudder even. James reminds us that consent to a creed means nothing in and of itself. Remember, his audience consists of mainly Jews, right? Displaced Christian Jews. Their creed was everything to them. In fact, James plays on their most famous and fundamental doctrine, the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Right? That God is one was the greatest foundational doctrine to the Jewish people, and it still is. But did you know that even demons believe that truth? Yet they're not saved. The demons believe and even shudder. They tremble. The word means bristle, like when the hair stands up on the back of your neck when you're afraid of something or you're intimidated by something. James says you can consent to the creed of your church. You can even get shaky when you think about the majesty of God. But if your life never changes in light of those things, your faith is not the right kind of faith. Because it's only head deep, it's not heartfelt. You need a trust that goes through to your soul and works its way out into your life. And I've said it before, you heard me say it before, that there's going to be a lot of people in hell who are not atheists, but believers in God. Demons are not atheists. They believe there is a God just like 89% of the American public claim to believe. Demons even believe in the deity of Christ, that he is the way of salvation, the only way and the true way of salvation, and they tremble at his presence. Did you know that? Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he got out of the boat immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Pretty intimidating. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up, and what does it say? He bowed down. He bowed down to Jesus. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. This is the demon talking. I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he has been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Acts chapter 16, 
flip over there for a moment. Verse 16. Probably remember this scenario. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination, i.e. demon-possessed, met us who was bringing her masters much fortune by profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, here's the demon talking now, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. And Paul, it says, was greatly annoyed by her. See, even demons believe. Yet through all their mental assent and profession of the orthodox position, they are not redeemed, are they? Not saved. It's a heartless faith. Simon Magus believed, was even baptized by Peter, But he needed something more. Just flip back to Acts chapter 8 for a moment. Verse um, 9. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, the man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He said, give me this authority as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Peter says to him. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Verse 21 is key. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. He's baptized, he believed, but his heart was not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. He needed repentance. His heart was simply not right. Saving faith is more than just mental assent. It's belief in your heart and in your soul. It's a repudiation of your unbelief. It's a total trust in Christ who is and in a trust in who Christ is and in what he accomplished for you on the cross and through the resurrection. It's personal. Romans 10 says, what does it say? The word's near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart that this word of faith that we are proclaiming because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe where? In your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith. 
And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God and not as a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see that subtlety there? You believe in your heart and it results in works. You're not saved by works. Notice where there is true faith, there is always a faith at work. Listen, if you're satisfied with a faith that consists of words only, merely intellectual assent, but void of the application, you better examine yourself, pinch yourself in your soul to see if your faith is real. Check your spiritual pulse. A faith that starts in the mind and stops at the mouth cannot save you. It has no heart. It misses heaven by 18 inches between the head and the heart. It's no better than what demons exhibit whose theology, by the way, is impeccable, but whose works are absolutely abhorrent to God. Faith never stands alone. Saving faith is more than just the repetition of some worthless words, regardless of how noble and how spiritual they sound. Faith and works are absolutely inseparable. There's another kind of faith, though, Another kind of faith that James talks about, a saving faith, a, a, a faith that's worth something in eternity. It's saving faith, and saving faith is dynamic because it works. It's a product of being right with God personally and spiritually. And so thirdly, James says, it's dynamic faith that you want. Not dead faith, not demonic faith, but dynamic faith that's righteous. Verse 21 in, in James chapter 2. And he uses two illustrations, Abraham and Rahab. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see, the faith was working with his works. As a result of his works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. If I were to give this section a title, it would be this, the patriarch and the prostitute, because that's the two illustrations that he uses. He illustrates perfectly through Abraham, the revered patriarch, and Rahab, the redeemed prostitute, what a working faith looks like. Both of these people are listed in the Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11 as supreme examples of true faith. This Hall of Faith chapter tells how these people and others lived out their faith, and they lived by their faith. They didn't just talk about their faith. According to Hebrews 11, verse 8, Abraham started out by faith because he obeyed God. Abraham sojourned by faith in verse 9 because he lived it out by faith. And Abraham sacrificed by faith in verse 17 because he was willing to offer up his only son that God called him to sacrifice. Now, there seems to be somewhat of a contradiction here in James, verses 21 and 22, when you compare it side by side with Paul, the apostle, what he says in chapter 3 of Romans in verse 28, where Paul says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, right? But here, James says, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh, are they contradicting each other? 
You need to understand the different perspectives of Paul and James. Paul wrote from the perspective that justification is by faith as it stands before God. In other words, Abraham was declared righteous by God because of his faith long before his works took place. Genesis 15, 6 is where it occurred. It says that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. And the word believed in that text, by the way, is the Hebrew word aman, which means amen. So be it. 30 years later now, fast forward 30 years, Abraham followed up on that amen with action. Big time action. In Genesis 22, 12, guess what happened? He, he brought Isaac up to the mountain and he was willing to sacrifice him. And it was after this greatest of works that the angel of the Lord reasserted God's verdict. Quote, now I know that you fear God. What's he saying? The works were the proof that what he said way back in Genesis 15 was true. Yes, he was declared righteous when he said the words and he believed God, but the works were the natural result of what he believed. The proof is in the performance, says James. By, willing, by being willing and by actually setting out to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, he proved that his faith was true. It was not only a professing faith, it was a performing faith. When James said that Abraham was justified by works, he's using the term to mean that his works served as a demonstration of righteousness, not a declaration that he was righteous. James and Paul use the word justify in two different ways. And that's valid. Paul addresses the root of salvation. James sees the fruit of salvation. Paul says that works do not merit God's favor. James says that works manifest God's favor. James and Paul are in complete agreement with each other. Faith and works are two sides of the same exact coin. Faith, works, salvation. Okay? The two messages don't contradict each other, but they complement one another. Faith is the basis for justification, and works serve as the barometer for justification. How many different ways can I say it to you? Get it? Got it? Good. James says that a dynamic faith is working faith. It's not dead. It's not dead on arrival. It's not demonic with all the right words, but no corresponding heart. It has life, it has a pulse, it grows, it's being perfected by what we do. And the word perfected here in James simply means to bring to its, its goal, to consummate it, okay? So it says here that his works perfected. In other words, by, as a result of the works, Abraham's faith was perfected. It means that it brought it to its natural conclusion. To bear much fruit for the glory of God. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. John 15, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and sit in church. 
No, go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you this command that I give to you, that you love one another. You are my friends, Jesus said, if you do what I command you. Does that warrant friendship with Jesus if you do what he says? No. But if you do what he says, it means you are a friend of Jesus. And Abraham, by the way, was called the friend of God. Why? Because Abraham obeyed God. And it proved that the friendship was real. In verse 24, James summarizes this whole perspective. A dynamic faith, he says, is a working faith. Don't take verse 24 out of context. Because if you do, then it contradicts Paul. Paul says that saving faith is not produced by working. James agrees wholeheartedly with him. He says that saving faith only results in working. Paul would agree with that too. So doctrine and doing, they're like the two chemical ingredients of salt, which is composed of two poisons, right? Sodium and chlorine. If we ingest either one of the two poisons, we die. But if we combine them properly, we have sodium chloride, which is the common table salt that gives flavor to our food and indeed life and health to our bodies. So too, faith and works are inseparable and brings fruit to the glory of God. But they need to be combined properly and in the right order. Works do not lead to faith. But faith always leads to works. And that truth, by the way, transcends any gender, racial, financial, political, ecclesiastical, or social status that you and I may occupy. And the proof is in verse 25 when James says, hey, wasn't Rahab the harlot also justified by your works? Her faith was far from worthless. As a pagan prostitute, she risked her life to save the spies because she believed the God of Israel was the true God. She put her belief into action and risked her own life to do it. See, her works were entirely different than Abraham's, yet both proved the reality of their faith. They were opposite ends of the spectrum socially, yet both are listed as extraordinary examples of faith and, in fact, are both named in Christ's genealogy. The patriarch and the prostitute And the point of these two illustrations is that true faith is dynamic, it's actively working, and it can be for anybody, anyone. And the bottom line is found in verse 26 as we close. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. A body without a spirit is nothing but a dead corpse, right? A faith without works is nothing but a dead end. If you looked at a body lying on the ground, the first thing you would ask would be what? Is it breathing? Is there a heartbeat? That would be the evidence of life, wouldn't it? And as we look at our own faith today, we need to ask ourselves the same thing. Is it breathing? Does it have a heartbeat? Because if our faith is not a living, breathing, active faith, James says there's only one other alternative, right? Faith without works is dead. It's worthless. 
Workless faith is a worthless faith. And they are as inseparable as the sun and the sunlight. Faith is the sun. Good works are its rays. Think of it that way. So, as we close this, I just want you to think it through. True faith does more than simply profess. It produces. We can know the Bible inside and out, know the ups and downs of the prophetic calendar. We can recite all the doctrines of the faith and even affirm every single one of them, but there's no practical evidence. If there's no practical evidence of any of that truth in our lives, James says very harshly but convictingly, That it's not real. The following words may characterize what Jesus might say to our generation. I was hungry and you formed a humanities club and discussed my hunger. I was imprisoned and you crept off quietly to your chapel in the cellar and prayed for my release. I was naked and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless and you preached to me the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I'm still very hungry, lonely, and cold. So we all need to examine our hearts today. What kind of faith do we have? Is it, does it resemble dead faith? A demonic faith, or is it a thriving, living, fruit-bearing, dynamic faith? Let's pray. Lord God, what a convicting message, and one which you know how hesitant I was to have to preach. And it causes me to look at my own life. It sounds odd for a pastor to have to deal with this kind of thing, but yet, Lord God, whenever anyone digs into the Word of God, it better be convicting to their own souls. Otherwise, we're not reacting to it well. And so I pray for anyone here within earshot of this message that if the Holy Spirit has been pressing on their sternums about anything, Lord God, that they've heard in this message. And especially about the reality of their faith. God, may they make the necessary changes by bowing ourselves down to you in humble surrender and in obedience, recognizing, Lord, that without you, we can do absolutely nothing. Say like the man in the Gospels said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Build our faith, Lord God. May we get to the root and the heart of what really it's all about. For the sake of your name, I pray, Jesus. Amen.